0: Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. We have seen over the last generation a rebirth of uh, interest of the religious influences that shape uh, America's history. This is very different than when I was in college. Uh, It seems to me there's a much greater acceptance that uh, America that religion has played an important part in the shaping of America. When I was, I'm exaggerating a bit here, but when I was in college, it basically had, um, you know, you knew that the Puritans, the pilgrims, and then the Puritans came over, and they were really into religion. And uh, and the founding fathers, well, they pretty much were on their way out. They were kind of deists, and they weren't that concerned about um, religious matters. And then, well... There may have been a revival here or two, but religion was something that wouldn't be put into the text of the history book. It'd be something that would have been put in one of those little inset boxes uh, in history texts. But, in fact, over the last generation, a lot of great work has been done recovering the important role that religion has played in the formation of America and America's Origins. With we'll me right now to talk about America's religious history this is Dr. Thomas Kidd, the author of many books, uh, most recently, America's Religious History, Faith, Politics, and the Shaping of a Nation. He's a distinguished professor of history at Baylor University. His writings uh, appear regularly in the mainstream press. He's a past winner of a national endowment for the Humanities Fellowship, and he tweets at Thomas S. Kidd, K-I-D-D. Dr. Kidd, good to have you back here. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Well, uh, is it true that we've seen a resurgence of interest in the role that religion plays in America's founding and um, history over the last generation?
1: I think that's definitely true. I, I think there's a couple reasons for that. I mean, one is that uh, among the many effects that the 9 11 attacks had in America, is, I think it, it was kind of the final nail in the coffin of the. the you know classic secularization theory that a religion was just going to die away and not not be a factor in world history anymore and you know so whether for good or bad or or whatever you think about religion in general you can't find that many people who now will say that religion is is going away in the right. world right um and and then i think that there's also been an increasing prominence of um Especially Christians in uh, academic history circles, both uh, Catholics and Protestants, uh, who are writing, uh, you know, up to usual professional standards and so forth, but who are also writing from a a faith perspective. And I think I think they've helped. uh, That group of people have also helped uh, a lot of academic historians to realize that, you know, that that Christianity in particular has a, a formidable intellectual heritage and and that even if you don't agree with it, that people actually took these sorts of ideas seriously. So I think the past 20 years or so have really seen a great renaissance in the study of religion, especially in American history.
0: Um, the telling of history is often, uh, has to be seen as involving a great deal of selection, right? I mean, The past is full of innumerable details, and the question is what are you going to select out as consequential uh, details? Uh, I would imagine that Christians or historians who take Christian faith seriously are going to be a little more sensitive to um, religious incidents in the past, religious figures in the past, religious ideas in the past. Um, Is that true?
1: I think absolutely that's right, and it is a great challenge about who you talk about and who you represent. And and, uh, you know, when you're just teaching an introductory history class, you just have this deep sense of most of everything that's happened, (laughs) even just in American history. You have to leave out, right? Uh, Of course, we don't have records of you know most common people's lives who've ever lived. Uh, So, um, but but I definitely am drawn as. Christian to uh, stories about the role of faith in the past, sometimes for good and sometimes for bad. Um, and uh, but but that's part of the reason I became a historian was just being fascinated by the role of faith and the American past in particular. Um, and and so I, I think sometimes now the the challenge for someone like me is is how do you balance between the kind of elite uh, Christian leaders? The theologians and pastors, and then and then just you know the everyday believer, right? Um, and how do you document their faith? And and so that that's one of the things I was trying to do in in this book is to is to try to represent the you know the broad diversity of kind of faith experience of people, just regular people in America, while also realizing that you know the the theologians and the pastors and priests and so forth they do play an outsized role and influence.
0: Well, that's, yes. I mean, that, I think that's uh, important. And there's been a recovery of kind of social history, hasn't there? Um, uh, kind of a, an interest in kind of every man's history uh, that we've seen. Uh, that would lead, I would imagine, then, to having some grasp of the role of religious experience, not just the presence of doctrine or institutions, but the religious experience of individuals. Um, is that difficult to write on?
1: It is difficult because so often we just don't have the records for it. I mean, it's amazing to me. For instance, just as one example, we we often, especially on the Protestant side, we we often know very little about what is happening in the past in just uh, regular Sunday church services. Uh, the, the the records are just not kept. And so uh, there, there's been very little study and very little information about just what regular church services yeah. look like. I mean, we, we tend to go to the ways that religion shapes politics and, and oh, that's you know, the public sphere kind of thing, but but that's not— for regular everyday Christians in America, that's not why they're a Christian. Right? I mean, they're not waiting for the next election to come around. You know? so, I mean, You know, what makes them a Christian is are praying and going to church services right. and 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 reading scripture and those those sorts of things. And and I, I think there's also been a trend in, in within social history towards what scholars call lived religion, uh, which which I think is a very helpful category that. Mm-hmm. It's trying to think about what—not just you know the political influence and so forth, but just the everyday life of regular believers, um, and and an understanding that there's probably been too much emphasis put on religion's political effects.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, let me let me kick it back to the origins of uh, America. Uh, how how important. Was religion in the formation of America? I mean, uh, sometimes people argue that, um, you know, between uh, uh, Jamestown and uh, Plymouth Rock, I mean, you've got religious interests versus commercial interests. Uh, How important a role did religion play?
1: Well, I think in about half the colonies, religion is the the animating reason why the the colony is being founded, and that's certainly the case in the New England. Colonies and uh, Pennsylvania and so forth, but but even in a place like Virginia, uh, the religious assumptions and motivations are everywhere. Even though you you wouldn't say that Virginia or South Carolina are being founded for religious reasons, mm-hmm. um, and and so you know you look at Virginia, we've just in the past decade dug up the foundations of the first Protestant church in North America there at Jamestown, and that's the church where. John Rolfe and Pocahontas got married, huh. um, and, and and you know what did what did the Virginia colonists do when they showed up on the shore of the Chesapeake Bay? They erected a cross. Yeah. Um, yeah. So so th- these are people who live in such a deeply deeply Christian biblicist culture uh, that that there's just no way that they could get away from those kind of influences.
0: Uh, that's that's you mentioned biblicist. How how much of a grasp did uh, you know your average layman? Have of scripture in those early days,
1: right? Well, in in the North American uh, English colonies, you know they're they're mostly Protestants, and uh, Maryland is is more of a Catholic sure. colony. Another one of the colonies founded for religious reasons, um, and, and so there would be some difference, I think, among Catholic and Protestant, and black and white, and and so forth. And obviously, literacy is a huge. Is a huge issue, but even the people who couldn't read um, were often sitting in sermons that were very sophisticated by our standards, uh, and, and sometimes quite long, two hours long, yeah, yeah. Uh, multiple times a week. And so if, if say, you were a New England farmer who couldn't read very well, uh, but you went to church every Sunday and maybe on Thursdays for a special week, weekday service— um, you you would have gotten a whole lot of the Bible preached and, and very intricately explained to you. And so even people who weren't very literate or literate at all could actually achieve a very high level of biblical literacy. So I, I think, especially in New England, but in in the English colonies generally, I would say there was a pretty high level of biblical literacy.
0: So the, the scriptures, I mean... The, narr- the biblical narrative, then, is, is, is that scene—I mean, it's not just a, something they, they saw at work uh, on Sundays during sermons, right? Did they, was it common to understand one's life, one's community, one's family, as well as one's church, as, as living out that, the dynamics of what we see in the biblical story? was the biblical story still alive i guess is what i'm saying um for yeah
1: i i think absolutely it is and and i i think that you you see it even in uh the uh, the, the the founding fathers moving up to the revolutionary period the mm-hmm. ones that are considered to be more deistic uh like ben franklin or thomas jefferson i mean i mean somebody like franklin is so deeply biblically literate um, because he grew up in a Puritan family in right. Boston um, that, you know, his his vocabulary is just teeming with biblical phrases all through his letters and everything. and And, you know, when he tells jokes, when, he, you know, similes and anecdotes and everything, it's just loaded with biblical <laughs> imagery. Yeah um and and yet franklin he calls himself a theist in his autobiography so i mean we can take him at his word sure. on, on that but uh you know someone like jefferson who's also more theistic but but when he's making the case for uh human equality uh he goes to the doctrine of creation yeah. you know all men are created equal right. and endowed by their creator and so You know, somebody somebody like Jefferson, he's a deistic, but he's not an atheist. Right. right? He's not secular in his mindset. So it's very, very common.
0: Dr. Kidd, hold it there. We'll come back on the other side of the break and continue the conversation. Dr. Thomas Kidd, my guest, America's Religious History, his newest book, Faith, Politics, and the Shaping of a Nation. I'm Al Cresta, and we'll be right back. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Thomas Kidd. He is author, most recently, of America's Religious History, Faith, Politics, and the Shaping of a Nation. I guess uh, I've noticed in uh, among evangelical activists uh, on the right, there's been a strong— uh, there was, I don't know if it's still as strong as it was 30 years ago— uh, the claim that America is a, quote, Christian nation— um, that's a loaded phrase. What in the world could a historian make of a sentence like that?
1: Um, right, it, and, and there is still a, a subset of evangelicals who are interested um, in, in promoting that that line. I, I think it, it's a little too clumsy for my taste. Yeah. I mean, I, I think we we have to get down to at least one step more detailed and say you know was america overwhelmingly christian in in terms of the way people understood themselves at the time of the founding absolutely uh, do christian ideas heavily influence the founding um yes certainly um but i i think where it's gone to seed is is the the desire to turn all the founding fathers into sort of born-again believers, right, right, um, and even someone like Jefferson, who is, is, it's not hard to find out that he denies the Trinity and he right. denies the resurrection and he doesn't believe in the validity of the miracles in the Bible and so. I mean, he, he he's trying to fit someone like that in as a traditional Christian. I think m- means that we're really watering down. What it means to be a Christian right. in, the, in the name of patriotism, and I, I think that's a really bad idea.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, when how how important are these awakenings? Um, so you have the, the first great awakening, the second great awakening. Is there a third great awakening? And one secular uh, historian claimed there's a fourth great awakening recently. What? How important are these periods of revival?
1: Well, I think that they're really important. I mean, I, I've worked a lot on the first great awakening. Yeah, you've written so a whole book on it. Yeah, yeah, I, I think it's worth, worth studying. <laughs> and and um, I, I, I mean, I think that that the first great awakening is, is is really where you begin to see the role of evangelical faith. Uh, so powerfully in American and in, in way in global history, um, and so if that's the beginning of the, the evangelical movement, that that makes that very important, and I and I think it does, in a way at least indirectly, help America to get ready for the revolution, mm-hmm. uh, because it's it's this huge social and cultural upheaval right on the eve of the revolution. So so that's important, and the, and I think the Second Great Awakening is important in 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 turning America. Uh, into an overwhelmingly evangelical uh, country by the eve of the Civil War. Um, that, uh, speaking of religion kind of on the ground, I mean, that that's the awakening when the Methodists and the Baptists come to the fore right. and become the, the largest American uh, Protestant denominations. It wasn't that way at the time of the founding, but it is by the time of the Civil War. And so I think in terms of just evangelizing America and the frontier and so forth, the Second Great Awakening is enormously important.
0: Do you do you see that beginning, you know, with Timothy Dwight at Yale at the end of the 18th century, or do you pick it up later than that?
1: Well, I think that there's not a really stark separation between the First and the Second yeah, Great okay. Awakenings. I mean, there's revivals regionally happening in the 1760s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and then you're at what people consider to be the second great awakening but there there's a pretty big difference in the kind of frontier revivals that are happening in places like Cane Ridge Kentucky that people often see as the first of of the revivals of the second great awakening um and then the New England revivals which which tend to be very sober and intellectual people like Timothy Dwight leading them at places like yeah. Yale um but but i think that they they still are connected in this in this quest for revival and mass conversions and so forth but but they tend to be pretty stylistically different
0: were, were there um were there any catholic revivalists
1: yeah i mean they they uh there's been a fair amount of work about the way that in the second great awakening um because it's it's such a powerful overwhelming movement that as uh, Catholicism is is growing on the East Coast, but also in places like Kentucky, mm-hmm. uh, that, that a lot of the priests start to take on sort of a revival style themselves, I mean, because this is what's, right. you know, their, their Protestant neighbors are so familiar with this kind of style that it's almost inexorable that that a lot of the priests would take on that kind of style, sure. too. Yeah.
0: Um, it has the second great Awakening, as you, as you say, is so important and shaping America uh as an evangelical uh having an evangelical worldview, what happens with the Civil War? Is the Civil War understood as a great failure of evangelical religion to resolve this issue without bloodshed?
1: It is. I, I think that uh, the tragedy of the Civil War, in in a way, can be summed up in the in the failure of Protestant theologians and pastors to to come to agreement with one another about what the Bible taught about slavery. Yeah. Um, yeah. If there was a way that they they could have done that, then then maybe we could have averted the the Civil War. But it's quite ominous to watch in the 1840s as the Methodist Church and then the Baptist Church split into. Uh, northern and southern branches, right. um, and, and divided by their view of of, of slavery, and so, uh, you know, whatever else we can say about uh, Protestant and evangelical theology, uh, they 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 couldn't contend with the problem of of slavery and interpreting the Bible, um, and so it was left to the you know the generals of the Union and Confederate armies to to settle the issue, yeah, yeah. Uh, and and I think that did helped to at least indirectly destabilize the Protestant domination of American culture after the Civil War, just a sense that, that that Protestantism had kind of failed.
0: We also have it that around the same time, you've got, of course, Darwin's origin, the species that comes out, mm-hmm. and you have also spiritualism. Uh, I'm curious, if, if you, how important was the spiritualist movement, that movement where through seances you try to contact the spirits of the dead. Uh, did that get a—how significant was that movement?
1: I think it was significant, and it's reflective of an ongoing story in American history that even in sort of traditional small Orthodox churches, that that the laity sometimes are, are striking out on their own and and doing things that maybe the pastor or priest doesn't approve of. Right. And I, I think that spiritualism is, is an example of that, and, and you know, forms of it, I think, continue on through even today. But, I mean, it's, spiritualism had some very high-profile adherents, including the Lincolns. I mm-hmm. mean, they, they were having occasional uh, seances at the White House during Lincolns, uh, term in office, and and so um, and of course they had had some notable deaths in their family, right, and were right. gr- grieving that, and so so I, I think there were you know certainly thousands and thousands of Americans who were interested in those kinds of practices as as a way to possibly communicate with the dead.
0: Did, did Abraham Lincoln um, have an interest in this, or was he just accommodating his wife?
1: I think it was more his wife, but he apparently uh, knew about it and was permitting these things yeah. to go on. And, and I think at least in one or two cases he was attending seances himself.
0: The uh, Following the Second World War, um, evangelical Protestantism begins to lose its grasp on— um, uh, does it begin to lose its public significance— uh, after the sec- after the excuse me, after the Civil War,
1: I think that it, it Protestants feel increasingly threatened because of you know the turmoil of the Civil War and then the rise of Darwinian um, beliefs and uh, higher criticism of the Bible, and that feeds into um, uh, what we call the fundamentalist modernist controversy of the late nineteenth and early twentieth century, where. Uh, the traditional denominations and seminaries were trying to fight back uh, that this sort of new thought about, well, the Bible is just a regular book and it's subject to the same criticisms that you make of any other historical book and that sort of setting aside the idea of divine inspiration of the Bible. Uh, and, and when you add evolution into the mix, uh, the, the, a lot of the traditional Protestants' See themselves increasingly as as beleaguered and and threatened, right. and they're trying to expel liberals from the denominations and seminaries with uh, with uh, mixed results. And I think that 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 all uh, symbolically comes to a head in the Scopes trial in 1925 when there's. An effort to keep controlling the teaching diet of the schools with regard to uh, the public schools with regard to evolution, mm-hmm. uh, and they win the case, but but in um, uh, you know and continue to be be able to ban evolution from public schools in Tennessee, but they kind of lose the cultural war, I think, on that issue.
0: When do When do the denominations begin to lose uh, control of university life? I mean, you have the development of Johns Hopkins and Cornell. Uh, When when does that occur?
1: Right. Well, I think 1870s, 1880s is when you start to see the rise of the kind of modern research university ideal, um and even places like Chicago which was founded as a Baptist university but that lasts about 15 minutes <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. uh uh it, well the divinity school keeps going but but you know the university itself is uh, you know becomes very secular research focused uh very quickly um and and then there's a a slower trend i think more subtle in many ways a, away from christian commitment at the older elite um, Ivy League schools that that were founded as Christian schools, but uh sort of slowly and from the inside out turn turn away from right. the Christian commitment mm-hmm. towards a more of an ethos and then and then finally just denying any religious commitment at all that comes into place say by the uh, post world war two era
0: yeah um, when when uh we when after the fundamentals after the Scopes trial, 1925, and uh, you've got a split within Protestantism between, um, you know, liberals or progressives uh, and your more uh, Bible-believing fe- fundamentalist groups. Do we, do we see—most um, people count fundamentalists out. Is that right? I mean, the story's usually told that that's the knockout blow— um, for fundamentalism, nineteen twenty-five, the Scopes trial, and then they kind of go underground. Uh, they're no longer considered publicly significant. Is it really that bad?
1: No, I don't think it's that bad. I mean, uh, the the fundamentalists didn't really receive the Scopes trial as as uh, loss because you know Scopes was convicted of teaching <laughs> right. evolution. I mean, That's right. he lost the case. The ACLU lost the case, and and so. Uh, but but I think because of the trial and the play and the movie that it has been portrayed as this great fundamentalist defeat in yeah. American pop culture. Yeah.
0: Dr. Kidd, can you stay with me another segment? Sure. Very good. Dr. Thomas Kidd, my guest. We're looking at America's religious history, faith, politics, and the shaping of a nation. I'm Al Cresta. And a good afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta with Dr. Thomas Kidd, America's Religious History, Our Topic, and the title of his newest book. I wanted to also see where Catholics and Protestants begin to um, have some interface here. Um, I'm familiar, I'm actually more familiar, though though I'm a Catholic, I'm actually more familiar with evangelical uh, history than I am uh, Catholic history. And so I'm wondering, at what point do Catholics begin to kind of see themselves as part of the American experiment, which has certainly Protestant uh, roots to it?
1: Well, the, I mean, as as you know, the, there's a, a long story there among, uh, you know, Protestant dissenting groups, but also Catholics to sort of... Prove their bona fides right. as part, you know, as, as true Americans, and and some of that happens when uh, Catholics serve in uh, the military, uh, and and that, that's often, uh, you know, for both ethnic and religious minorities. That that's an a, a important story of you know, well, we served the nation, and we right. gave you know, our sons gave their lives for uh, for the nation in the Civil War, World War One, um, but but along. With those developments, I mean, there's there's huge waves of Catholic immigration that are happening in the 1830s and 40s, in the 19 teens. So you know, from the 1870s to the 19 teens, the huge mass waves of Catholic immigration that bring out the anti-Catholic Protestant sentiment among a lot of elite Americans and so uh there's a lot of back and forth on that but but I think certainly by the 1950s when you get uh Catholics contributing uh, mightily to the anti uh communist right. crusades and then I I don't have to tell you the election of John Kennedy in 1960 right. I think is is really it's not the end of anti-catholicism obviously but it's it's a really Big moment when Catholics feel like, well, we can elect a, a president, so we're we're very much part of the American right. tradition and experiment.
0: I've I've been talking to uh, you know younger uh, Christians and younger Catholics in particular uh, that I work with, and something I've noticed in our conversation is that my experience—I uh, was born in 1951. My experience of growing up as a Catholic uh, during the Cold War and coming up to Kennedy's election, which I actually do remember, even though I was only Mm -hmm. nine years old, um, there was something about that which was, was very important. So I grew up believing there was actually a battle going on between good and evil, between the atheistic communists. And the Christian Americans, and that it was important to God that um, you know this was something that meant it took place in space and in time. This was actually going on. It had a very kind of spiritualized political history there. That isn't true for this more current generation of Christians. They don't have the same um, they don't have the same sense, it seems to me, of a bifurcated world where you had the good guys on one side, the bad guys on the other, and that God thought it was important that one side win over the other. Uh, they don't seem to have that kind of moral clarity. And again, I'm speaking, God, I was only, I was a kid uh, then, going in into my teens. But I think that idea of civil religion was very important for uh, young boys and young men of my generation uh, it made us believe that God was at work in the world on a big scale, not just on a personal piety level. What do you make of that?
1: Right. I think that there has been uh, a diminishing of American civil religion. Uh, and and from a Christian point of view, I think there's some good and bad things right. about, about that. I think sometimes American civil religion can be, be a corrupting, uh, factor in, in sure. true faith, true biblical faith, but but um, there there was, I think, and, and substantially correctly, I think this understanding that communism, Soviet Chinese communism, were were atheistic, godless uh, forces, and and that that really drew out, especially in the 1950s, um, the, the the great landmarks of of American civil religion. Uh, You know, uh, making in God we trust the national motto and adding under God to the Pledge of Allegiance. That only happened in the 1950s. Um, And so I I think there was a clarity that, uh, you know, I think Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush helped to sort of conclude the Cold War. With a constant recourse to that moral clarity about this, you know, this is a, a fight worth fighting, and and uh, and then the fall, I think, of the Soviet Union and the Berlin Wall, um, uh, unintentionally, I think, deprived the nation of that kind of clarity. Right. I, I think you you saw some of that come back with the 9/11 attacks. Mm-hmm. So I think of George W. Bush's speech on September 20th 2001 when he said you, you know freedom and fear are always at war and and god is not neutral on right. these questions right. that's uh, that's easily the most memorable line of that speech and and uh you know that that appeal to the idea that god has taken a side in this in this war um and he'll be on our side because we're on the side of freedom um but but that hasn't lasted um partly because uh, the, you know, the the jihadist menace is a menace, but it doesn't tend to have a sort of a state center right. of it. Right. It's very it. amorphous. Right. Yeah. It's amorphous. And, and, you know, we haven't had the same kind of constant jihadist attacks here since since 2001. So um, I and I and I think it's also the influence of postmodernism and, um, you know, kind of anti-patriotic sentiment. That that it's sort of unseemly to be patriotic, and, right? And, right. And, and so and to claim that God is doing something in world history is it seems more difficult today.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, I I, I agree. Um, civil rights movement uh, begins you know, in the 1950s or the modern civil rights movement, post-Brown versus Board of Education, the Montgomery bus boycott leading up to the signing of the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act in the mid-60s. That's going on at the same time that we have this uh, battle against communism. What is the relationship between America's civil religion, again, this idea that the, the the nation is exceptional it's uh, a harbinger of freedom uh and, and somebody carrying a virtue to the world uh as over against the atheistic communists but at the same time we've got the civil rights movement going on in the united states which reminds us that uh well we've got a serious uh, stain on our history that we need to make right uh some people would see these two things as opposed to one another but i'm curious how you would look at civil religion and the civil rights movement
1: well the the soviets made a lot out of uh the the fact that african americans were oppressed in the united states and 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 so it it was a standard uh, piece of soviet propaganda of use in 1950s and 60s that that uh, African Americans were not treated fairly in the United States, and so they would mock our uh, supposed commitment to to liberty. And I, and I think that probably, in some cases, made some uh, whites who otherwise wouldn't have been that interested in civil rights uh, at least a little more touchy and sensitive about that a- accusation, uh, which you know I think was a somewhat a legitimate accusation that mm-hmm. you know, we, we say we're defending liberty and yet this, right. Have Jim Crow and and so forth and and so I think for someone like Billy Graham, uh, the great evangelist uh, and anti-communist uh, crusader for sure, um, you know he he adopts integrated uh, revival meetings fairly early, uh, somewhat quietly, but but uh, he he n- drops segregation in in most cases at his revival meetings, and I'm I'm confident that among the many reasons that he did that, and I, he, I think he just thought it was the right thing to do. Right. But I think he, he also thought that, you know, we don't want to give the communists any more uh, ideological ammunition against us than, than we than we should. And, and uh, that integration was one of the ways to undercut the Soviets. Uh,
0: in the 1970s, it seems to me, evangelical Protestants and conservative Catholics begin to find one another as uh having common some common social purposes the opposition to abortion um the interest in um uh christian education uh the um eventually the homeschool movement and there's a cooperation that i don't think we'd seen before in american history Between Catholics and Protestants, do you see what happened in the late seventies and through into the eighties, and really it's still going on today? Do you see that as distinct from uh, what had happened earlier between Catholics and Protestants?
1: Well, right, there was an overwhelming uh, history of uh, anti-Catholic animus among elite Protestants, especially. Um, But but I think you do start to see the breakdown of those, those walls between Catholics and Protestants a little earlier with, uh, with a, a concern about communism. Okay. Um, and, and, and so Catholics and Protestants, for instance, would be, uh, both be excited about expressions of American civil religion in the 1950s. And, and Catholics, I think, were especially keen on it to show that you know, we're, we're part of the anti-communist bulwark too. Um, but but something different definitely came about in the 1970s. Uh, most importantly, because of Roe v. Roe v. Wade, right? Um, and uh, there, there's some misunderstanding about this among some scholars. That some will say that evangelicals kind of came late to uh, the pro-life movement. Uh, that that's really only true for Southern Baptists, um, and and there's a variety of reasons why there was some pro-choice sentiment among uh, Southern Baptists. Mm-hmm. But you know, Christianity today, the National Association of Evangelicals, immediately denounced Roe v. Wade uh, in 1973, and and uh, found that you know the, their most vociferous allies in the pro-life movement were Catholics, yeah. and so so that that set up a, a natural cultural alliance uh, between uh, evangelicals and and Catholics that as you say has has mostly uh, continued to flourish through uh, the present day although i think in some ways the trump administration has, has has brought some of that into question because now we we you know seem to have a pro life president and and that uh, i think has allowed some some more differences to come out between uh, Catholics and, mm-hmm. and Evangelicals and kind of First Things circles and, and, and so forth, the First Things magazine. But but the point is, is that I, I think the 1970s really does signal an almost unprecedented reproach on between uh, Evangelicals and Catholics yeah. in America.
0: Yeah. Uh, how important do you think Francis Schaeffer was to mobilizing uh, American Evangelicals on the life issue?
1: I think that that Schaefer is—he's definitely the most important kind of pop intellectual evangelical leader of the 1970s and, and 80s among evangelicals. I mean, um, and and he does, I think, uh, crystallize evangelical opposition to abortion. Although, as I said, I think I think it's been regularly overstated about how much evangelical resistance right. there was right. to. To the pro-life movement, but for people like uh, Jerry Falwell Sr. and and some other of uh, the leaders of the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, Schaefer's influence clearly plays a role in, in helping them to think through the abortion issue. Um, but for a lot of evangelicals, Schaefer's just uh, pushing on an open door, <laughs> ready for the case to be made that, against abortion. That's
0: a that's great great uh, impre- great image. Thank you. Well, Dr. Kidd, once again, uh, thanks so much for your time with us today and for the work that you're doing. Uh, It's very helpful in orienting us to our responsibility as uh, Christians in this nation. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Dr. Thomas Kidd, America's Religious History, Faith, Politics, and the Shaping of a Nation.